Today's scripture will be from 2 Corinthians 5. We're taking a break from Acts for a Sunday. Um, So that's 2 Corinthians 5. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in, in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed we put it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body... We are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what it... But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but are giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who might live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old one has passed away. Behold, the new one has come. All this is from God, who, who though Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. In 1998, a six-year-old named Ryan Helgic was shocked to learn that Africans had to walk many kilometers for clean water just to do the basic necessities of life. Ryan decided that he needed to build a well in response to this. Now, mind you, this is a six-year-old. <laughs> he said that he would build a well in the village of Africa with little resources and little experience in engineering. He decided that he would 
do chores around the house and pick up sticks in the neighborhood and mow lawns. And he would take the opportunity to stand before people in the community and share with them about the necessity for clean water and sanitation. And Ryan did this. And in fact, in 1999, a year later, he was part of constructing a well in a Ugandan village for a primary school there. Ryan's determination led to the establishment of the Ryan's Well Foundation. Some of you may have heard of it, maybe not. But this foundation has completed 667 projects in 16 countries, bringing access to clean water and sanitation for more than 714,000 people who didn't have the basic necessity of clean water. So why in the world am I telling this story? <laughs> telling this story because this young man was moved to action to provide clean water to nourish the bodies of those people in countries that he had never been, for people that he didn't know. And he used what he had to accomplish those means. And remind you, he was only at the tender age of six. How many of us are that motivated to provide living water? Living water for the thirsty souls of our neighbors, for the thirsty souls of our families and our friends. Ryan was moved by a conviction that all people should have access to clean water. Are you moved? by our Lord's calling to be an ambassador for the living waters to flow through the souls of men and women across the nation. Does that stir your heart this morning? I believe as God's people, we struggle in this life primarily because we're confused about our identity. Our identity informs so much of what we do and why we do it. So much so that God in his sovereign plan purchased an identity for us with the blood of Christ. We are part of God's epic story that he is telling and has been telling. And we have a role to play. We have a part in this story. The reality is that we live in many ways as if we don't have one at all that we have nothing to do with it, that God is going to accomplish his means and we're not a part of it. The reality is that his primary means of accomplishing this task is the people of God, his own people. And if we refuse or if we choose to be passive in this engagement and in this endeavor, we deny the very gospel that we say we believe. And so this morning, what I'd like to do is to take a look at the promises of God and how the enemy tries to distract us in many ways and keep us from reflecting on these promises in a contemplative way that will move us to action. 
In our text this morning, Paul has provided for us in 2 Corinthians as a whole, a missionary manual that in many ways is stitched together from his ministry experiences. This manual consists of the suffering endured and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit in Paul's life, ministry, and message. See, the church of Corinth was founded by Paul, as we're told in Acts 18. Paul has a strong connection to the Corinthian church. It was the only place outside of Ephesus that he spent a significant amount of time. He spent at least a year and a half with the Corinthian believers, establishing them, preaching to them, loving them, encouraging them. And this is the fourth of his letters to that church. It was in Corinth that we, or excuse me, that he received a vision from God in the midst of conflict in preaching the gospel in the synagogue amongst Jews. He received this vision from God that is packed with promises, that is packed with a vision, that is packed with truth. And this is what God said to him. He said, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. I find many times in ministry for me, I need these kind of words. I need the promise of God that he will be with me, that his his presence will be with me. The only thing that sustains me many times in ministry is the presence of God and the promises of God. And as the people of God, that is what we reflect on when we find ourselves encountering difficult situations or circumstances, or we find ourselves discouraged, we reflect on the fact that God is ever-present. He is always with us. And we reflect on his promises specifically. And here, this is what the Apostle Paul found encouragement in, in this promise that that God was telling him that the work you are doing is good. Continue to do it. Persevere in it. And that I am with you. And although Paul's ministry is marked by affliction and persecution and attacks from without and attacks from within, here in Corinth, in Acts 18, God promises that that would not be the case, that no one would harm him. See, it is in the shared identity of our unity with Christ that we find the promises of God extended to us who are within the new covenant. Through our text this morning, I want to point out three promises and then give three mindsets that result from a consistent contemplative reflection on these promises, along with the implications that they bear on our identity. In chapter 5 of Corinthians, we, th- we see the promise of restoration. We see the promise of redemption. And we see the promise of reconciliation. See, redemption and reconciliation set the foundation for our union with Christ. The restoration that is promised is a matter of fact. It's already begun and it will continue until the day of Jesus Christ. So this promise of restoration, 
I asked my brother to read the whole chapter of Corinthians 5. I appreciate that. Thank you. And part of the reason why is because of this promise of restoration. When I was originally planning to give this sermon, I went back and studied through the text, and I said, man, there's another promise there. My people need that. <laughs> Let's pull that out. So here, if we look at verse 1 of chapter 5. Here we see, we really kind of come in the middle of Paul kind of sp spilling out in, uh, in an emotional outburst in many ways. It's kind of this whole book is structured like that. It's just emotional overflow after overflow, and it's really no uh, structure to it that we can follow in many ways. So I'm going to jump back just a little bit further, and I'm going to take us forward. Believe me, we won't be here all day. <laughs> what I want to look at for a quick second is verse 16 of chapter 4. This promise of restoration. Here Paul says, this is his mindset. He said, we do not lose heart. He says, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This promise of restoration is seated in a reality that our outer self is wasting away and that our inner self is being renewed. I feel this every day. <laughs> in my ministry, I labor among college students. The problem with that is I'm always getting old and they never get old. <laughs> They're always in the prime of their life. And I'm always feeling the fact that my outer self is wasting away. I tried to connect with a guy one time. He said he wanted to start running again, and I just got a new pair of Asics. So I said, okay, man, let's do this. <laughs> he said, meet me at the track. I said, all right. We go to the track. He said, how far you want to run? I said, man, you know, we could do about two miles. Yeah, I'm feeling pretty good about that. Well, we start running, and he's, he started doing this weird thing. He's running, but he's talking to me. <laughs> I'm like, bro, just, you know, chill out, man. You know, I need to pace myself. <laughs> I'm wasting oxygen here. <laughs> but he's running and talking and just kind of skipping around me as I'm kind of laboring hard on the track. For me, this, this was a reality of this wasting away of my outer self. But here at the same time, what's happening is Paul says we do not lose heart. We don't lose heart because our inner self is being renewed. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. I think about our society. I think about how our society is so consumed with youth and beauty, vanity. How the outer self is everything. 
and how we, we pump ourselves with poison in many ways and take on practices that are, can be harmful just to preserve this outer shell that's wasting away. And the reality is that their whole identity is wrapped up in this outer self. But that shouldn't be so for the people of God. Not when we have this promise of restoration that is already happening within us and is going to continue until Christ returns. Not so for us. We don't lose heart. We persevere. And how we endure these hardships that we face in life is a testimony to the power of the resurrection of Christ in our lives. So how we respond to the evidence of our maturity in life is a witness to the resurrection power in our lives. How do we respond to that? Paul says here, our light in momentary afflictions is preparing for us a weight of glory that can't be compared. Light in momentary affliction. Paul's shipwrecked. He's beaten. He's abandoned, left for dead. And he considers that light and momentary. When we think about the afflictions that we face in our life, our sickness, disease, death, in our family, among our friends, our loved ones. Do you believe that? Do you believe that they're light and momentary afflictions and they can't be compared to the weight of glory? Does that fuel your daily walk with Jesus? Because remember, how you respond to these afflictions give evidence, give a witness to the power of God in your life. We have these promises. We should not respond in the way that the world does. See, many times when we get or we go to our friends for comfort, we simply say something like, you know, man, I really feel bad for you, um, but you know, it's going to get better. Or we say something like, it's okay, it's not that bad. But what's needed in those moments is a spiritual sightedness. An ability to be able to see the work of the Spirit in the situation and in the circumstance that will provide motivation to persevere. We become discouraged and even disillusioned when we can't see Christ. Seeing the promise of God and the person of Christ in whom we receive them is what sustained the apostles, is what sustained Paul. Is what sustained grandmom and them. Is what sustained our ancestors. Is what sustained and will sustain us if we will willingly reflect on them. We know that our earthly tent is being destroyed. If we have a building from God, we get into verse one here. He says, "This this earthly tent." He uses the word tent and juxtaposes it to the building. The temporal nature of a tent is that it's just that. It's, it's temporary. It's not permanent. I won't get bent out of shape 
if the tent is not kept neat and tidy because it's temporary. I know that the building that we're going to, that Paul says here is our heavenly dwelling, is not made with hands. It's eternal in the heavens that God is building this building for us. This we find comfort in. We make it our aim to please him while we're here in these earthen vessels, knowing that our true dwelling is not a tent, but a building. And it's constructed by the master architect who has endless creativity, who has infinite resources. He doesn't cut costs or cut corners. He has lavished on us all the blessings that we can have. All the richness is at his disposal. So we follow Paul's model in that he longed to be home with God and be restored completely, physically and spiritually. But he realized that that labor can still be done here now. I'm not going to be so consumed with this heavenly building that I'm of no earthly good. Here he wanted to endure knowing that he must give an account before the judgment seat of the Lord. And we all will have to give an account for what we do in this tent. How are we using our tent? Is it a tent that's set up for worship to God? Or is it a tent that's set up for worship to false idols? But when we reflect on this promise of restoration, we can truly find the motivation to persevere through difficult situations. See, it's not only us physically in our bodies that are longing, but it's all of creation. All of creation is longing. He mentions that in verse 4 of chapter 5. And if we look at Romans eight nineteen, he says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. In verse 22, he says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. See, creation is personified here as waiting, waiting for the restoration that has already begun. See, God has already begun this restoration. When Christ died on the cross, when he was buried and resurrected, he began the restoration of all creation, ourselves included. And guess what? We are the agents of that restoration. And I don't want to get ahead of myself. God and Christ's death and resurrection has begun the restoration of all things. This is the New Testament eschatological view of life. This is how they say, I've been living in the future like Marty McFly. You know, we live as kings. This is the key to unlocking the identity of the new covenant believer. It is here, right here, in between this tension of what is already and what is not yet. We live here. This is our identity. Embrace it. Glorify God in it. Reflect on it. Contemplate. Spend time reflecting on the reality that we have a promise of restoration. But not only that, we have a promise of redemption. If we look at 
verse 13 through 16. This promise of redemption. It reads, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, but we have, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. This promise of redemption says that, that one died for all. This redemption was accomplished for those who have experienced the grace of God in Christ. This free gift of grace only comes through one man and is abundantly available to many, to all who would believe. But it's only through one man, and that is Christ and him crucified. Romans 5.15 tells us, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. To many. Romans 3, 21 and 26 tells us, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Let me skip down a little further. He says, there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in who? Jesus Christ. One man. Romans 5, 6 through 8. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, who died? Christ died for us. Ephesians 2, 1 says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins following the course of this world, but God. But God made us alive in Christ. So I tried to explain this idea of redemption to, to my kids. I have five of them, and my beautiful wife is there. Thank you for your support. <laughs> Five children. Age ranges from 10, 9, 6, 5, and 2. So you try to explain the concept of redemption to them. Well, I decided that since my wife loved couponing, I could try to explain it in a concept that they would understand. I mean, we go to the store together, we do the shopping and everything together. So I tried to explain it in this concept uh, of couponing. And I said to them, I said, I said, Zoe, Zarell, I you to understand that Jesus is the big ticket. Okay? Jesus is the big ticket. Okay? He's the big coupon. And the value of that coupon purchases your soul. That coupon has infinite value. So when we go to redeem that coupon, you turn it in and you redeem the value of it, you are set free because that coupon has infinite value. You were once slaves to sin, 
But now, because the big coupon pay for you, you are now free. And I like to say that, you know, the light bulbs went off and they all fell to the ground and repented of their sins and embraced Christ. You know, it was a seed planted. What can I say? (laughs) See, this is what compelled Paul. And this is what should compel us. It compelled Paul to faithfully execute his calling as a minister of reconciliation. In fact, it is the promise of reconciliation freely offered to those who will believe that is the content of the message that Paul preached. He preached redemption because he knew that it was promised to those who would believe. He preached restoration because he knew that it was promised that God would accomplish it. And the last promise for us is the promise of reconciliation. This word reconciliation is to make no longer opposed, to reconcile. There's some sort of beef, there's something going on, some tension. One party is opposed to another. And when reconciliation comes, they're no longer opposed. We see the problem between God and man is that man, in his pride, refused to submit to God's terms. He refused to submit to God. In his pride, he resisted God. And we know from 2 Peter that God, what? He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So the question today is, are you proud in your heart? Are are you proud? Do you resist the means of reconciliation and redemption in Christ that God offers freely to you? Have you seen that and said, you know what? I got a better way. I'll I'll try this. I think my yin and my yang is going to work better for me than this thing. Um, I think... Uh, if I just do enough, then somehow, um, you know, it'll balance out and I'll come out on top. You know, God will let me in. God opposes the proud. He is against the proud. But he says he gives grace to the humble. And so God provides this reconciliation to us through Christ. And realize that all of this is from God. It's not something that man conjured up. It's not some system that the man has put in place to control the behavior of the people in some way. No, all of this is from God. And that's what Paul says in his text. He says it's from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And so I would plead with you, like the apostle, we implore you, on behalf of Christ, to be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. Acquiesce to his terms. Because the reality is, you can't beat him. So you might as well join him. You cannot beat it. It is guaranteed. It has been purchased. The big coupon has been 
redeemed. It's been turned in. You've been bought back. If you will respond in faith and repentance. And for those of us who have responded in faith and repentance, I like this quote by uh, D.M. Lloyd-Jones. Uh, it's the reality that in this reconciliation, he doesn't just reconcile us individually. It's not just an individualistic thing. It's a community. He brings us into the community of believers. He brings us into a family. And Lloyd-Jones talks about this. He says, our worship and praying are spontaneous. It is the spontaneity of the child who sees the father and not only spontaneity, but confidence. A little child has confidence. He does not analyze the situation. He knows that Abba is father. Grown-ups may stand back at a distance and being very formal and very casual with, with people who are of great personage. But little children, little children come running in, rushing right in, and holds on to his father's legs. He has a right that no one else has. It's instinctive for us who have experienced this reconciliation to cry, Abba, Father. It's instinctive. We should be doing it spontaneously is what Lord Jones is saying. This should just be the flavor of our life. People should be spazzing out like, oh, what's up with you? <laughs> I'm calling on my father. This worship and this prayer should be spontaneous. When I come home from work where I'm very insignificant and most people think I'm weird, <laughs> I have one joy every time I walk through the door. And this is the beauty of having five kids. And Alexis could attest to this. She's been around. Is that no matter how the day went, no matter who rejected me, no matter who didn't want to listen to the gospel, I walk through the door. And by the time the key hits the door and I turn the lock, it's like the whole house comes flooding at me. And they just, Daddy! And it's just pandemonium. And I love it. I love it. And I think that that's the idea that, that, that Lord Jones is getting at here. He's saying that, that our worship to God should be spontaneous. Our prayer and our praise to God should be spontaneous. It should come and flow out of us naturally. Because we've experienced the promise of reconciliation. We've experienced the promise of redemption. We look forward to and are currently experiencing the promise of restoration. Why shouldn't we respond in spontaneous praise? Why shouldn't we? This is our identity in Christ. By virtue of the fact that we're in union with him, this is what should naturally flow out of us. And so, in summary, we have this present, or excuse me, this past, this present, and this future grace that we're experiencing in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, you don't know what that's like. 
And so I implore you to be reconciled to God so that you can join this family. You can experience what this is like. And once you've tasted of it, you've tasted the goodness of the Lord, you won't turn away. So in conclusion, I want to look at three responses to this. Three responses. It says, because we have these promises in Christ and he is making us new creations, we adopt new mindsets. Romans 12, 1 and 2 tells us that in light of the mercies of God revealed to us through these promises, let us renew our minds and not be conformed to this world, but what? Transform, right? And so here's a few ways that I see this transformation working out. It works itself out, one, in, in new compulsions. We see that in verse 14. That what compelled us before, and this idea of compelling is, is what's pushing you forward, what's, what you wake up in the morning excited about, what compels you is the love of Christ. There's new compulsions. It's no longer the old things that used to compel me, uh, whether it was the pursuit of success, whether it's the pursuit of riches or fame. These things compel me to do some pretty foolish stuff. But what Paul is saying here in Corinthians is, is that if you are in Christ, there's new compulsions. You're compelled by the love of Christ. And just, just quickly, just in case we don't really know what that looks like, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible is, is Ephesians, Ephesians 1. You see, we see God's love displayed. If we're saying that this is going to compel us, then what is it? What does it look like? In Ephesians 1, 3 through 5, we see that we're chosen, that, that we're predestined and adopted into a divinely royal family. And so what's the compelling response? Well, the compelling response is love and obedience, right? And that's grace that we've experienced, those who are in Christ, we've experienced that grace in the past. But not only that, in verse 7 through 10, we see the love of, uh, the love of Christ in redemption, in forgiveness, and in God revealing to us his will. And how do we respond to that? What would be the compelling response to that? Love and obedience. And that's grace that we experience right now that we know that we have this promise of redemption and forgiveness. And then also in Ephesians 1, 11 and 14, we can look forward to this inheritance. We have a hope and a future that we're given the family resemblance, the Holy Spirit, who guides us and leads us and comforts us. So if this doesn't compel you, if this doesn't stir you up, and if this can't get you up in the morning, to put your feet on the ground and walk out your faith, then there may be some questions you need to ask. What is really compelling me if it's not the love of Christ? But not only new compulsions, but we have a new culture. If you look at verse 16, going back to 1 Corinthians, modern Ephesians, that was a little tangent. Verse 16, he says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. 
So there's a new culture here. There's a, there's a, there's a new identity that we adopt. We regard no one according to the flesh. It doesn't matter what your heritage is. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what your parents, the language your parents spoke. It doesn't matter your education level. It doesn't matter your, your, your socioeconomic strata. It doesn't matter because in this culture, in the community of Christ, the only thing that matter is that you are united with Christ. That's the only thing that matters. So we have new compulsions. We live in a new culture, in a new society. And then lastly, we have a new calling. For me, this is where I think a lot of believers just kind of drop the ball. We kind of look at it as, we look at our salvation as a sort of um, life insurance policy. You know, you, you, you hope you never have to use it, but, but you buy it anyway, even though you know you're going to die. But the reality is fire insurance. You, you hope you never have to use it, but you just buy it anyway. Car insurance. We want to insure everything, any calamity in life. But we look at it, we, we don't see that it's not just saving us from the consequences of sin, but it's calling us to a ministry of reconciliation. And here Paul lays it out. He says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And then he explains what that is. He says, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us. Who's us? Those who have turned to Christ in faith and belief. He's entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. So that means we don't have the privilege just to come to church and sit and be entertained. We don't have the privilege of just saying that we are saved and, and create our little Christian bubble and become the new frozen chosen. We don't have that privilege. We are called to something. He called us out of something, but he called us to something. And it's this ministry of reconciliation that God in Christ is reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. That's what keeps people away is that they think, I've, I've gone too far. God won't forgive me. We are the ministries of ministers of reconciliation that go to them and say, no, that's not true. The gospel says that you can be reconciled to God, that you are not too far gone. And this is what we're called to. You see, God is the ultimate missionary, the ultimate missionary. He's always been about the nations. And here, in this passage, he reiterates his heart for his people. This is no less than a restatement of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19. He says, go and what? Make disciples of all nations. Here he's saying, go and be ministers of reconciliation. That's what we're called to. That's what Christ shed his blood for. Because remember, we have these promises. We have this promise of restoration. That's where our part comes in. If God is reconciling the world to himself, what does he do? He restores it. 
He brings it back to its original state, what he intended it to be before sin entered. And we are ministers of that reconciliation. We have the promise of reconciliation. We have the promise of redemption. We have the promise. Look at my note. What promise was that? Restoration. <laughs> Restoration, redemption, and reconciliation. We have these promises. And the way that we respond to these promises is to take on these new callings, new compulsions, and new culture. Pray that you all were encouraged by this. Let me pray for us.